Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, at 12 years old, Chandra Oppenheim was cooler than most adults will ever be. She retired at 13, but now she's back on tour after 40 years, sometimes with her daughter. It was an EP that we we started working together when I was about nine. And these and were adult humans. That's right. Okay. They were all, <laughs> so you they were were all adults. Yes, uh-huh. they were all adults. And then another generation of youth artists puts on a brick festival for their peers. People should be proud of like what they're showing and feel free to express it and not be afraid because everything that we do, what we do and what we love, that's a passion for us. When I was 12, I was engaged in such worthwhile pursuits as keeping my Tamagotchi pet alive, passing notes to boys who made fart jokes, and trading lip smackers with my other idiot friends. When Chandra Oppenheim was 12, she was fronting a post-punk band in downtown New York, performing for a who's who of the early 80s art world. The New York Times wrote, Chandra is a cool, self-possessed girl who epitomizes New York precocity. No bouncing nymphette she. Forty years later, still cool and self-possessed, she is reviving a career that was put on hold so she could focus on algebra and Latin homework. And now her daughter, age 12, is getting in on the act, too. Today, we welcome former Brooklynite Chandra Oppenheim. Welcome to Woman 2 bk Thank you. And her daughter, Issa Oppenheim-Pressman. Thanks so much for joining us, Issa. Yeah. So, Chandra, tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in your households in New York in the early 80s. Well, I had two households. I had my dad was in Tribeca and my mom was right around the corner here in downtown Brooklyn. So they were kind of almost like a a split personality. So in a way that I mean, really what that gave me is the best of both worlds. I had this crazy fun time at my dad's and I had a very stable, secure place at my mom's. <laughs> and your dad, Dennis Oppenheim, mm-hmm. was an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes. in his obituary, the New York Times described him as an athletic, ruggedly handsome man who maintained a shock of blonde hair longer than seemed biologically possible. <laughs> so will you tell me a little bit about him and yeah. his art and yeah. how you intersected with his art as well? Yeah, sure. Well, he did maintain. I mean, now as I'm getting older, I see, I look back and I say, wow, he really did have a lot of energy and youthfulness about him and um, was working all the time. He, he was so prolific and he, his mind was constantly going and, and pumping out these crazy machines. And by the time I was seven, I was starting to write my own pieces and he was there as a sounding board and as almost more like a peer in terms of the creation of the work. And I could talk with him about my ideas and he was very encouraging. And so, and then I did my first performance art piece when I was seven. And it was around that time that I did that a piece opening for Laurie Anderson. Who, who were your influences when you were seven, eight, nine, ten? What other artists were you seeing downtown? Or? Well, I think my father's work was just through osmosis that was that was an influence so it was conceptual because i was drawn to music it was conceptual art coming into influence music so <laughs> there's that piece but in terms of musical influences the backing band that i had which was the dance they were naturally a huge influence because we played shows together and i was around those musicians all the time and got to hear what they were creating 
Um, and then at, in my dad's house, he uh, the kinds of things he was listening to were uh, Patti Smith and Lou Reed and Devo, Blondie, that kind of thing. Yeah. Isa, I'm curious about what you think when we're talking about your mom, your age and, and younger, you know, performing at some of the most revered venues in New York in the 80s. Does it strike you as odd or is that just sort of like part of what your family does? I think it's just kind of part of it. Yeah, I see it as something that I just kind of do. Mm-hmm. And do you also um, make your own art, performance art or music? or? Um, yeah, I write a lot of songs. Um, I haven't done performance art yet, but I'd like to try doing that. Well, I want to come back to some of your songs, um, but Chandra, tell me a little bit about, mm-hmm. so you, you started um, creating music with this band, mm-hmm. The Dance, mm-hmm. and you released an album with them. Tell mm-hmm. me about that album. Well, it's uh, it was an EP that we uh, we started working together when I was about nine. And these and were adult humans. That's right. Okay. They were all, <laughs> so you they were were all adults. Yes, uh-huh. they were all adults. So there were um, th- my two songwriting collaborators were Eugenie Desario and Stephen Alexander. And so they were the people who were friends of my dad's. And that's how I got connected with the dance being my backing band because and that was their band. Did they yeah. reach out to you? Like, why did they want to work with a nine-year-old? I think they they wanted a second project. I always thought that they wanted specifically to work with a young person, but I found out more recently that they were simply looking for another project, and somehow I guess they were talking with my dad about that, and I think I had already started writing songs, so they thought, well, let's get together, have a try out a rehearsal, and it went so well that we, we continued, and then we worked together to develop, oh, maybe about six or seven songs and then picked four to do the EP. Mm -hmm. Where would you draw inspiration for Mm. your lyrics? Yeah, directly from whatever I was going through as I was about to enter middle school, basically. So school relationships, that kind of thing, friendships. And then a big piece of it, though, I think, again, going back to my father's aesthetic and, and influence on my work, Things having to do with, um, I, I know one of the words that's mentioned a lot in reviews and, and such are paranoia. And I do feel like, especially, I mean, growing up, being a girl in New York in the 70s, you had to have eyes on the back of your head to be safe. You just There were, there were all kinds of things that I was taught to do to be safe. So it was on my mind every uh, time I stepped out the door. So there's that fear element. And then my my dad was also interested in, in, in psychology. So I think there were elements of having to do with losing your mind or someone else taking over your mind, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's a song that's basically about stranger danger. That's right. It is. That's Probably that's definitely one of my favorite songs. I yeah. love that song too, uh, and yeah, also it yeah. it um it both strikes it strikes me on several different levels. Mm. One is that it it could be a child, a young person mm. talking about like you know m- my parents told me never to talk to strangers, mm-hmm. like don't get in the van. Yeah. Um, and then also yes, yeah. these threads of like a, a a young girl who's becoming a woman in New York and kind of like you know a gritty time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think you know if you didn't know that. Uh, an 11-year-old wrote it, mm-hmm. you could also take it 
on a different, more philosophical level as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love that so many of the lyrics kind of operate on on multiple planes. Yes. Um, yeah. You have another song that I love, and I know many people do as well, mm. called Kate. Yes. <laughs> um, and the opening lyrics are, there's a girl named Kate, and she thinks she's really great, but she's not, <laughs> which is definitely something that I, I wrote in my own <laughs> diary <laughs> when I was in seventh grade. Um, so maybe you can tell me a little bit about that song and about the inspiration yeah, for it. sure. Well, I mean, really that came from, it simply put, jealousy. So there was a, a girl who um, I went to school with named Kate. (laughs) And um, I think a lot of my focus would go to her because I of my own insecurities or just feeling like, gee, I wish people were paying more attention to me. And, (laughs) and so I would, I would then become kind of resentful, but it was, it was somehow her fault. <laughs> mm. And, and uh, yeah. you write about how, you know, she's blonde and, yeah. you know, people are paying attention to her because yeah. she's blonde. And, right. But also yes. you can sense that there is that, um, that push pull of like envy, but also like maybe be my friends. You oh, know, definitely. That you get and we were age. friends mm-hmm. too. So there is that element. I mean, so there is some character in this. It's not, it's not me purely as myself. I'm exaggerating things and trying to, in the songwriting, take things on these tangents from where I might actually feel. But then there was the other element of it, too, which is that I also felt compassion for her for getting that attention because maybe she didn't want that or didn't want the attention in the way she was getting it. And Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of very precocious gender stuff, Mm -hmm. I find, you know, an acknowledgement of jealousy that she's getting attention, but then also being able to put yourself in your shoes and being like, oh, wait, that maybe that sucks for her. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Issa, where do you pull your inspiration for the lyrics that you write from similar places as your mom? Um, Yeah, usually like just from my school experience, I write a lot of songs about... um, friends and enemies. Sounds similar to the Kate situation. Would you be, I mean, if you've performed or if if you were to perform a song about a friend or an enemy at school, would you be concerned about how they would receive it at all? I think that the people I write those songs about would be just too self-centered to know that that song is about them. Right. Unless their name was actually in it. I think... Like, they'd probably be upset with me. Mm -hmm. But I don't really care. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like maybe you use more, like, coded language than your mom. I mean, calling the song Mm. Kate (laughs) was pretty bold. Like, I bet you think the song is about you, Kate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So tell me, so you you wrote these songs, you released the EP, Mm -hmm. and then you started performing. Yes. What was that like for you? Yeah. Well, our first show was at the Mud Club, which was actually practically in the same building as where my father's loft was. Um, And I remember that for that first show feeling very nervous. But by the time we were about at our third song, it was my favorite place to be. (laughs) What did you like about it? I think it, when I'm on stage singing, I get, it's what, you know, people talk about being in the zone. I'm just, I'm so relaxed and comfortable and focused and everything makes sense. And were the people coming to see you 
your peers? Were they no. adults? They wouldn't have been able to get in. Right, right. Yeah, no yeah. IDs. Yeah, right. What did that feel yeah. like being, you know, the only preteen? Well, I was it? very accustomed to being with only adults because that was, I was, well, first of all, I'm, I'm I mean, I have half siblings, but they grew up out West. So at that time, I was a, an only child. Both in both of my households, I was surrounded by adults. <laughs> Did you ever yeah. perform for um, an audience of your peers, like not at the Mug Club, but, you know, at an all-ages venue, or was it always? No, I don't even know if there really were. Uh, I, I remember there was an all-ages disco being the 70s. Sure, sure. <laughs> but, but you weren't exactly doing that type of music. No, <laughs> no. No, I don't think there was an opportunity to do it. There was one show that we did at the Peppermint Lounge, and I was allowed to invite a bunch of friends. And then a little bit later, you did have a band where other teenagers were backing that's you right, up, right? That's right, that's right, yeah. What was mm. that decision to do that, and how did that how did that mm. differ? Well, a lot of decisions were made by the adults in, in my life, so I'm not sure exactly how that was, but I think they, because I was, by then I was about, 12 or 13 or so. I guess they liked the idea of having everyone be around that age um, just for fun, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And probably, I'm guessing the dance probably wanted to move on <laughs> and not be the backing band anymore and do focus on their what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Issa, what do you think about the music that your mom wrote and performed when she was your age? I think it's really cool, and I really enjoy singing it, and I really like listening to it. What type of music do you listen to um, today? Well, I usually just listen to the radio, mm -hmm. and um, I really like uh, Halsey. Well, she's your favorite right now, I guess. Yeah. Halsey's great. <laughs> I feel like there's often this talking down to children of a certain age, right? Mm. Between the ages of like maybe yes. 10 and 14, yeah. mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, you know, teeny bopper is like this pejorative mm. term and we're gonna feed them like Disney Channel mm. stars um, and that they don't have like a sophisticated musical palette. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? I mean, clearly you were listening to what the adults in your mm -hmm. life were listening yes. to. Yeah, do you think that we're dismissive of, of young think, people's I musical taste? I think our tastes? culture is in general yeah. dismissive of young people people's ideas and w abilities and yeah and and what they have um their opinions about the world around them i mean what you were doing was actually very radical right it was mm -hmm. um putting a young woman front and center and saying that what she's writing about her ideas her lived experience is valid and worth paying attention to mm -hmm. You're, you're still, you recently, you took a break. You took a long break. Um, well, sort of. Yeah. I just took a break from that, those songs. <laughs> yes, you took a break from those songs, but now you're yeah. performing those songs That's right. Again. Now, yes, that's right. Um, yeah. What is it like revisiting that material? Yeah. Well, I do feel like as uh, performing them that they do hold up. I mean, that uh, kind of like what you were saying about how they have the, they're multi-layered and they can speak to any age group. Just because I wrote them when I was a kid didn't mean that they were geared towards children. It applies to any human <laughs> um, in, in a certain way. There's, um, it isn't limited. It isn't, yeah, like um, a nursery rhyme or something like that. It's very easy for me to uh, 
tune right back into the the feeling of it and the the message of it because I can identify with it even now. Is there a song off transportation that means something different to you today or deeper or where you view it a totally different way than yeah. when you wrote it? Well, from the so there were the the second set of songs that we recorded in 1982 that weren't on the original transportation but are now part of that package and there's one called get it out of your system and that is all about time travel time warps um, thinking about the kind of envisioning the future and and um, the um, the perspective of a lifetime and that kind of thing but written by an 11 year old <laughs> but when I sing that, it's like I, um, my 11-year-old self is speaking to my present-day self. Oh, that's so eerie. <laughs> and Issa, you perform sometimes with your mom as well. Um, are there any songs that you in particular like singing off the Transportation album? I really like singing Concentration because I feel like the message is kind of about taking over somebody's mind, and that's just, it's fun for me to embody that character on stage. When you embody the character, do you think of embodying your mom at your age, or what is that character that you're projecting? It's kind of just like a person that's in a zone, you know? Like, it's relaxed, but very serious. Would you want to share some of your own lyrics with us? Sure. Great. All right. I can say what I want, and you can't stop me. Even if it starts a catastrophe, I don't care. Because in case you didn't gather, chaos is what I live for. Do you want to be a dictator? Do you want to be a manipulator? I'm going to need my defibrillators. You're killing me, killing me. Why can't you understand? She's the angel, you're the devil, and I'm complicated. So there. Take that. Turn round and look at me. Rook took your king. Checkmate. Knocked down to the ground. White flag waving. Angels clapping. I win. Thank you, Isa. I loved yeah. that. Thanks. So do you also write music or do you have um, to work with friends who like write the music to your lyrics or? Um, well, I, I write my own music. I tried writing a song with some friends and um, it's just really difficult for me to work with other people because I have so many ideas and it's just, it's really hard. So now I just write songs on my own. Chandra, um, any advice to young people out there today who might want to be sharing mm -hmm. sharing their, their songs or their lyrics? Yeah. I think really letting things flow out and turning off that inner critic and 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 letting it really um, be how it is naturally as it comes out and that that's where I think the you can find the gems with your uh, rather than thinking oh I, I want to write something that I think this person's gonna like or or oh that that you know, just constantly critiquing so that nothing can actually get out on the page. So move that aside and turn that part of your brain off and get a pen and a piece of paper 
and write what you want to say. And I think that's something that young women often struggle with is self-critique, self-censoring. Mm-hmm. Is this good enough? Um, so thank you both for being tremendous role models. And Transportation has been re-released, and you can find it in record stores. Yeah. Okay, well, mm-hmm. thank you both so much for coming on the show. Chandra Issa. Thank you. Thank you. As a kid, Chandra Oppenheim was surrounded by curators and artists like her father, Dennis Oppenheim, and she staged her performance art at prominent downtown venues like The Kitchen and Franklin Furnace. But for most creative young people, finding a place aside from the internet where they can share their art with like-minded peers is more challenging. That's why for the sixth year in a row, Brick is carving out space for high school media makers. It's a film festival by youth for youth. It's called Concrete Stories. And we're joined today by two of our Brick Youth Media Fellows, Taylor Grant, a senior at Lower Manhattan Arts Academy. Hi. Welcome to Woman 2BK. <laughs> and Steve Hederville, who's in his senior year at Abraham Lincoln High. Thank Hi. you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, Taylor, can you tell me a little bit about Concrete Stories? What is it? So, um, basically, we're inviting young artists, young filmmakers who are 21 and under, and they get to submit their films, and they get to have them be played at this festival. And I encourage, well, no, actually, we encourage everybody to, like, come on down and, you know, see the festival. It's for everybody, and the admissions are free, so... You save money that way, so it's like really great. That's great. And True. Steve, what's your role in the festival? Um, well, not it's not only me; it's a team. So we're we're in the curatorial department, and we kind of kind of put the whole thing together as far as like uh, the promotion, outreach, and whatnot. But it's it's all it's a team. So yeah. yeah. And how many curators are there? Um, Around five or six. How did you become curators of the con- of concrete stories? Well, personally, like, my school does internships when you're a senior. One of the the person that was, like, telling me about this place was like, oh, I think this would work out really well for you because you want to go to school for film. And I also want to do playwriting. I think that's something that I've always been interested in doing. And I love the environment here. I think it's a very special place, and I feel very safe around here. And I love being a part of it, and I love being surrounded by people who are interested in the same thing as me. It's very lovely. And Steve, what type of films are you going to be looking for from people? Um, just just different films, different genres. We don't really have a, one kind of film because like different films have different stories and everybody's stories is very compelling and very different. So that way, you know, bring them all. Are there criteria? Like, do you have to be a certain age? Is there um, a type of format that you're looking for? It's not like a film festival, right? It's like a media festival. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have criteria. For example, we have to be, you have to live in New York. Uh, you have to be a high school student, and you have to be under 21, age, 21 years old. So, yeah, those are the criteria. Are there other types of formats other than film? Like, are you also accepting like I don't know, virtual reality or augmented reality, or is it just basically straight up film? It's basically straight up film. You can have any type of genre. Um, it could be narrative, experimental. It could be really anything. The length has to be, I think. It has to be like 10 minutes, yeah. 10 minutes long. Yeah. It's more solely based around film. Okay. And have you guys had films play at the festival before, or is this your first time engaging with the festival at all? This is my first time. This is my first time, too. Okay. Do you also want to be a filmmaker, Steve? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll do photography and poems, So, but films is, is, is a way to express and just kind of share your stories. And 
I've always loved storytelling. I think that everybody has a story to tell, and that's one thing I'm interested in. What are some of your favorite films or filmmakers? Mm. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I like Mar- I like Martin Scorsese. Personally, my favorite film of all time is um, The Pursuit of Happiness. Um, but that, not by him, but I don't remember the director, but The Pursuit of Happiness. I like Les Von Trier. His films are very complex, and um, it takes a lot of time. You have to really analyze it, and you have to really get into it. But I think my favorite film would have to be um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Like, the first time I watched it, I was like, what's going on? Like, it, it took me, like a few times to actually understand the gist of what's going on because, like, it's very confusing in the beginning, but if you, like, analyze and if you start to, like, the more you watch it, I think the more you understand, but it's very good, and if you haven't seen it, like, you should watch it. That's a fact. It's Go great. watch that. It's a good one, too. Good yeah. one. So there's been such a democratization of media since, like, I was in high school. Like, mm-hmm. now if you're a student filmmaker, you can upload your videos to YouTube or Instagram or whatever, right? So why is it important to have a film festival like Concrete Stories? I think that it's just an outlet for creators to to express and share your stories. Storytelling is important. Like Everybody has a story. Everybody's different. So therefore, come share your stories with us. You know, you could win. You could win prizes. So why not, you know, be different? Why not tell your stories? Because everybody's different. Everybody has a story to tell. Everybody's their own lives. So, but I think that storytelling is a, it's just a way to express, you know. We don't, we as seniors, we don't really have a, a lot of outlets to express, and I think that the Concrete Story is just, just an outlet for teenagers to express and be yourself. What do you think, Taylor? Like, why is it important to have a physical film festival where people are going to be gathering in a room together? I think um, it would give a person a chance to express who they are and what they created, and um, that's a really big accomplishment. I think people should be proud of, like, what they're showing and feel free to express it and not be afraid because everything that we do, what we do and what we love, that's a passion for us and we should always be able to do it. So maybe I'll close out with, um, we have a thing where we have a couple producers on the show who are older than me and some of the other producers and we like get to teach them about internet slang. (laughs) Uh, But you guys are younger than me, so you definitely know slang that I don't know. Can you guys each teach me something that the kids are saying these days? Uh, (laughs) Each one teach one. Like, I don't know if you're saying something that's um, very true. Some people will be like, yeah, that's facts. or um, yeah. That's facts. Yeah. <laughs> I think you actually said that earlier in this interview. Yeah, that's fact, facts. Facts is like one of the... One of the um, it's so used. Yeah, it's, so I'm not going to say that's a fact. I'm going to say that's facts. No, nah, let's, let's say somebody <laughs> said, hey, you know, the basketball game, it was lit. Let's yeah. another one too, but yeah. it was it was a good game. You could be like, that's facts. That's facts. Or if yeah. um, people are being crazy, be like, oh, you're walling or like <laughs> <laughs> you blow mind. You're blowing mind, but lit. You blow mind. Yes. It's okay. Like, you're going crazy. You're outrageous. Great. But lit is another one we use a lot. Lit is like or okay. Flame. I knew that one, so I feel good about that. Lit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's lit. It's lit. Lit is like um. Where it's like just super turned up and super like very good. You could say super turned up. Yeah. Okay. People say a flame too. Inflamed? Yeah, flame. This is so flamed. Oh, I think you said flame. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> flame or like, like if you have pink eye, like as inflamed, like uh, not like that. No, it's like okay. it's flame, like that's fire. That's yeah, fire. That's fire. Let's say you have a say. crazy outfit, like you're wearing some undercovers or like some Rick Owens or Raph Simmons, you'd be like, oh, that's fire. That's lit. Are that's teens fire. at your high school wearing Raph Simmons? Yes. Wow. Okay. Yes. I'm in the wrong job, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, thank you guys so much. Oh, tell us about how you can apply. So if there is a youth watching this who wants to submit, where do they go? And is there a deadline? Um, the deadline is April 18th. Mm -hmm. They have a website. They have a website. So I think you just have to go on their website and you have to find the link somewhere. And you'll, you'll Google Concrete Stories Brick. Yeah. Great. BrickArtsMedia.org. Mm -hmm. right. It's open to everyone. So. And you said there were prizes? Yeah. What type of prizes are we talking like about? Like different awards, like for best, um, like best actor, best supporting role, something like that. Okay. Excellent. Thank you guys so much for joining me, Steve and Taylor. Thank you Thank for you. having us. That's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. One Win 2 BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 